This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 39 is something like, does religion necessarily conflict with science? And we read Friedrich Schleiermacher's On Religion, Species to Its Cultured Despisers from 1799, with notes added in 1821. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is Daniel Horn in San Francisco. And no Seth. <laughs> and no funny uh, <laughs> additions? No. The inn is just the dead manifestation I figured, yeah. of a, a richer inner life that was left unexpressed. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to be accreting uh, habits or doctrines that are just going to cut to the heart of the show. I figured that was a pregnant inn there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this in-joke will be evident to the listeners by the end of the podcast. <laughs> Listen to it on auto-repeat, <laughs> I would say. We knew that Seth was not going to be able to make it tonight for scheduling reasons again. And so we uh, asked Daniel, and Daniel picked the topic. So if you're wondering, Schleiermacher, who is that? Why would you? I have requested Foucault and Sartre on the website 20 times. Why aren't you doing those? Well... Because it's Daniel's fault. But it's a good suggestion. <laughs> I will say in my uh, half-assed defense that anyone who fancies themselves a fan of Heidegger, I think, will appreciate Schleiermacher's impact on religious phenomenology and hermeneutics later on. But we're not going to get into the hermeneutics part. So for what it's worth, if you guys really want to represent, you got to go back to the old school. Well, and he, I noticed in my web searching that Schleiermacher is very well represented on religion sites and history of religion related kind of things. So he's, I guess, the father of liberal Protestantism. So even if you haven't heard of Schleiermacher, you have heard of his view. And in fact, he could have been talking to people right now. Yeah, in fact, I think there's a book that responds to the new atheists that uses the same subtitle. I was just looking that up. Is God a Delusion? A Reply to Religion's Culture Despisers. Yeah. <laughs> By Eric Reitan. Or something like that. Let's hope he lives up to the pretense of stealing a famous theologian <laughs> subtitle. Yeah, I'm not going to hold so, my breath. I'm looking at the Amazon page for that right now. And one of the reviews of it, I think, is very telling in what it says about Schleiermacher. He really says this guy does the same thing that Schleiermacher did back then, which is to interpret religion in such an intellectual, fancy pants way that, yes, religion will pass will we'll evade all of the arguments that the uh, culture despisers, that the new atheists would use against it, right? It, 
this kind of religion is compatible with science. This kind of religion is really, there's nothing you could object to about it at all. However, in doing so, he makes it not what almost anybody actually believes. At least this is the charge in this review on here. Although Schleiermacher, right? And is that how you pronounce it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, Schleiermacher mm. is, is okay. the way to pronounce it. It just fun trivia bit. Uh, Schleiermacher is apparently German for veil maker, which huh. absolutely no relevance to this discussion. But <laughs> to the interesting yeah. that criticism that you just voice marked is a criticism of natural religion in a way he's trying to steer between the very abstract natural religion and then the positive or revealed religion with its specific doctrines. You know, Christ died on the cross for our sins and so on and so forth. Right. So yeah, whether Schleiermacher succeeds in, in navigating that is a question, but someone who is making that critique would have to understand that he's cognizant of that kind of critique of natural religion, and in a way, he repeats that critique. Just to pile on here on a guy I've never read, I worry that this author is falling into a, an unfair pattern. I don't know if unfair is the word, but a kind of a sad pattern of people feeling that they really need to do everything within their power to rebut the new atheists, and will just marshal every possible historical or philosophical argument that they can to do so. But as Wes pointed out, Schleiermacher was more subtle. He was actually navigating between the more highfalutin intellectualized religions of the day and out-and-out atheism. And so my guess is what's going on, at least in some of the books, I don't want to beat up on that particular one, but in books that I've seen is that their real thesis is you don't have to be an idiot to believe in religion. And that's not, that wasn't Schleiermacher's agenda. So, And when we say highfalutin religion, we're thinking of this abstract God who I guess, uh, is the cause of the existence of the world. It's sort of Spinozan God, impersonal. And really, it doesn't matter what specific religion you have. It's sort of a, a more abstract, philosophical, unmoved mover concept. And that's the kind of thing that Mark is saying that no one actually believes in when they're... Most religious people, of course, are into a very particular form of revealed religion or positive religion, a, a where positive you, know, religion, you have certain right. doctrines that you adhere to, whether it's, you know, Islam or Christianity or anything, anything else you want to choose. There's certain things that you believe, which go way beyond the sort of abstract philosophical God concept. Right. There was another philosopher, I think Schleiermacher was referring to, I think his name rhymes with want or... Um... Something you're not allowed to mention him. <laughs> I'm hoping one of the three of us will have some opinions on that guy as well, so that see if that that will play into our discussion today. I should say an official part of the reading assignment today, as well as this uh, Schleiermacher text, was at least the preface to Kant's religion within the bounds of bare reason. So that is one of the things that Schleiermacher is responding to. So not only is he trying to show that religion is independent of science, but religion is independent of ethics which is uh, not something that... You might expect him to argue that, you know. The argument is not cast in the same way now as it was back then. Right. But the point being then that Schleiermacher was responding to what we might call natural religions, which were either the deistic faiths of the day, which might be represented by people like Locke or Voltaire, people who looked to the natural world and tried to integrate scientific understanding and harmonize that with religious belief. And as you guys mentioned, making religious belief more and more abstract. But of course, Kant took a different turn, right? I mean, not only was he well-grounded in science, but he also tried to ground religion, not so much by harmonizing it in the physical world, but by approaching it through ethics. And Schleiermacher... While he greatly respected Kant, and I think found great value in Kant's views on ethics, didn't want to see ethics as the way by which one gains faith. 
And I may be, and Wes, I apologize if I'm mischaracterizing or oversimplifying what Kant is doing, but it seems as though that's the route Kant is taking to faith, and Schleiermacher doesn't feel that that really works. Before we disappear into Kant for 10 minutes or <laughs> whatever it's going to be, so what's so heightfalutin about Schleiermacher is not that he has this belief in an impersonal Spinozan or deist god necessarily, but that he thinks religion is non-cognitive, that it doesn't involve beliefs, religion proper, right? There are things sort of associated with religion that are not religion proper. So what makes you a Catholic or a Protestant or a Jew? And those are all legitimate ways, which we'll get to how he thinks you can get actual everyday religions out of this in the course of this. But religion proper is just this inner feeling of some sort. And uh, yes, mm. you have to try to articulate it some way. You're going to definitely be driven to articulate it. You're going to want to shout it from the rooftops. And that's how you inspire others. And they can see, maybe have some similar experiences. It's very much like an artistic practice, he seems to think. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yeah. I don't know if I'd want to call it a phenomenological practice, but it's a sort of proto-phenomenology that he's developing. Well, introspective. Yes. You will get the point of religion, maybe, if you have a certain sort of self-reflection. And it's not like phenomenology where everybody can just sit back and I'm contemplating the essence of the table in front of me, or, you know, like Husserl does, because it's very hard to get yourself to have this kind of inspiration. But he, he thinks if you, if you look around and it's very, you know, once you have a glimmer of piety within you, and this sounds very Nietzschean to me, that maybe it's just a matter of your constitution. Like some people are just too weak sold to have this experience. But yeah. if, if you've got it, then you can talk about it and communicate with others and, and reflect upon yourself and increase it and sort of see it revealed in different ways. So then you start seeing the world through pious eyes. And this makes your life all the more rich and gets you to understand even more what religion is about. And so that's sort of what religious education is about, is talking to other people and trying to get them to encounter that within themselves. Yeah, there's a section in the middle of the second address where he really describes, I think, almost in the way that later phenomenologists did, this kind of opening up of your eyes, letting all of the universe come within you. And before your cognitive senses can separate subject from object – he says that's the magic moment in which if you are sensitive enough – and I think that's the way you phrased it, right, Mark? You know, Only certain people are going to have that kind of sensitivity. It's not that they have to be mm -hmm. smart enough. They have to be sensitive enough to be able to just notice that magic moment before subject separates from object as you presumably just sort of open your eyes and let the universe flood in. He describes nature, I think, and natural beauty as a way in which you're more likely to encounter that experience. And I think he described Jesus as sort of having the ultimate God consciousness, right? He was the one who was most able to capture that moment and become aware of his merger into the infinite, which I think most of us would have a very hard time doing. But perhaps phenomenology is a way to visualize how that happens. I'm glad you brought Jesus up there, because that's sort of where religious tradition comes in. All authentic revelation, and he seems to be pretty charitable, at least on the face of it, in what he considers to be authentic. Like, well, if people have been inspired by it, it was probably authentic. You can't fake it. So while even some parts of, and, the, and he doesn't go into this in here, about which parts of the Bible are, that's where the whole hermeneutic thing comes in, that he has a whole other works where he does biblical analysis. And I was noticing he has notes to the fourth speech that some of it, the Bible is just historical, but some of it, like the speeches, the Sermon the on the Mount, of, that type of thing. Yes, yeah. are really what it's all about, where you can really see the inspiration taking place. And so Hinduism and Buddhism and all these things are founded on inspirations. Right. And these are all, it's just a legitimate part of human psychology and our being in the world. <laughs> Throw Heideggerism in there. <laughs> 
I think what Heidegger liked about it is that Heidegger was all about mood and emotion and feeling and intuition. Well, actually, let me take that back. It's probably a good thing for me. Seth isn't here to smack me <laughs> upside the head for saying it that way. But you get a strong sense in being in time of the importance that Heidegger attaches to directing your intentionality toward moods or toward wants, toward desires, toward these kinds of non-cognitive, preconceptual notions. And I think that's what he picked up on with Schleiermacher. Now, why does that matter? I mean, should have we gotten too far into the weeds without summarizing what is the project here? Who is he talking to? What's going on? Or I think in the course of our stumbling around, we've given a, a quick summary. <laughs> okay. Did one of you want to do a quick bio? If you're Whoever's ready. Uh, let's see how quickly I can do this. What's Schleiermacher's deal? He was essentially a contemporary of Hegel. He was born in 1768 in what's now modern-day Poland. He was the son of a Prussian army chaplain. He was educated by this kind of freaky, pietistic community called the Moravian Church, which emphasized a kind of heart religion, an emotional religion. It wasn't really based as much upon text or scriptural authority as much as it was feeling the passion of Christ's sufferings and trying to access religious faith through that. And I think that very much influenced his later sense because he seemed to merge that pietistic, emotional heart religion with Spinozism, ultimately, to create this emotional attachment to an imminent God. Well, also, he was a Lutheran preacher, ultimately. And I mean, that was the whole main difference between Protestantism and Catholicism, right, is your personal relationship with God is what matters. It's the introspective individual de-emphasizing the political power of the clergy in favor of something more egalitarian anyway. So, yes, you know, you could see that that sect and Schleiermacher's eventual view is just specialized versions of this. And one of the, the uh, lectures I was listening to this was emphasizing his connections to Luther in particular. Mm. Interesting, yes. So he's set up to take up the life of clergy at a very young age. And you get the sense, this is something I picked up from one of the lectures, you get the sense that being a clergyman back then was a lot like being a lawyer. It's just a profession you undertake. You study for it, you pass your exams, and you can get into something like a lucrative position in society by getting some sort of a tenured job within a church, preferably one of the state-run churches. What was interesting about Schleiermacher is that upon his graduation, he, through certain connections he'd made at the University of Hall in Germany, had served as a tutor to the aristocracy immediately after graduation from about the ages of 22 to 25. After 25, he passes yet another theological exam, which frankly kind of sound at the time like they're like medical boards. You kind of take these increasing ranks of theological certifications in order to be able to teach it to different churches. By the time he turns 28, he is able to become a hospital chaplain in a very major hospital in Berlin. And at that time, he starts to join the intellectual and cultural elite within Berlin. Literary figures like the poet Novalis, the Schlegel brothers. And at this point, he's really becoming part of the Romantic movement within Germany. And the Romantic movement was essentially a counter-enlightenment. It was a, an emphasis of the individual against the state and authority. The whole aesthetic movement tended to emphasize feeling over abstract science and philosophy. And he became very much a part of this. But a lot of the intellectual and cultural elite he was hanging out with really were somewhat bemused by his Christianity. You know, how is it that you seem to be able to hang out with us and have these very enlightened views and yet still be as devout as you are? And he wrote on religion in 1799 at the age of about 30 or 31 in response to his contemporaries that he was calling the cultured despisers. So these were people that were either part of the aristocracy or part of the bourgeoisie at the time, very highly educated, sharing ideas on politics and philosophy and science in uh, these salons of extremely rich people, which raises the very obvious question, what the hell happened to rich people? 
how is it that we went from rich people getting together in the salons of the aristocracy into uh, showing up on reality television? I just don't know how these cultural trends wound <laughs> up uh, falling apart. But in any event, this is what prompted him to write on religion. At the time, this wasn't any sort of academic dissertation. And I think you guys would agree as you read it, it doesn't read like any type of methodological academic treatise. He writes this really as a literary work because at the time he was really engaging more in literary activities aside from his hospital chaplaincy. He was editing a literary magazine with the Schlegels, who were a couple of instrumental literary figures from the Romantic period. They're not J.R.R. Tolkien characters. <laughs> they are not. That's right. <laughs> they were not related to Ori or Nori. <laughs> In any event, after he wrote that in 1799, that really helped made his reputation. He wrote it anonymously because I think some of his uh, his benefactors had really resented what they took as an unduly bohemian take on religion because a lot of what he was doing was mocking and criticizing positive religion, as Wes had mentioned earlier. But based upon that, he's able to, in a few years, he helps form the University of Berlin with a number of other of the movers and shakers of the day, and he's quickly appointed to be professor of theology. He then goes on and, and becomes more mature and somewhat sells out, and he backs away from a lot of the, I think, really bold claims he'd made in the work we're discussing today. That's why this is so fun, because... yeah. So the, the uh, 1821 version, which is the version we're looking at, I guess he did do a little bit of tweaking of the actual wording of the text, but mostly he just added at the end of each of the speeches these uh, – Footnotes, would you say? These footnotes, yes, yes. Like I know I said – I it sounds like I said on page nine that I don't believe in a personal God, but of, of <laughs> course I, I believe in a personal God. Come on. Right, exactly. And, yes. I, I know I said that Spinoza really had the answers, but that doesn't mean I was a Spinozist. Right. So it's like he's trying to uh, save his reputation. But at the same time, he does defend some of the claims. You yes. know, it doesn't seem like he's actually trying to change his mind. He's just trying to get you to reinterpret it. And in fact, what he's giving us is a peak of the second half of the project, which is like we're saying, you know, if religion is ultimately a matter of this personal experience, but at the same time, it has to be communicated and it has to play itself out in certain historical ways. And so that means that he can be a pluralist, you know, Protestantism and Catholicism and these other things can all be legitimate outgrowths of well, at least what was originally inspiration. Maybe there's some corruption and deadwood floating in each of them. I guess based on that, the amount of deadwood, he's going to be able to give an argument for why his version of Lutherism is better than some of, you know, having the idea of Jesus as a mediator between us and the divine. That works really well compared to some of the resources that these other religions have at their disposal. Well, that's true. Though, wouldn't I, you know, I got the sense probably more perhaps from the secondary authorities I'd read on this, that he's really saying that all religions, even Islam, even Hinduism, even ancient Greece, the ancient Greek pagans had an access to a religious feeling and a religious experience yes. that was really no worse. Yeah than what Christianity had on offer. In other words, it seemed to him that it was this imminent feeling that one could get access to that was the most important aspect of religion and not so much Christian dogma as such. You're right. I think he does make some sort of – he's not very consistent. I don't think he's very rigorous because he does have some other areas in which he, he sort of trounces on Judaism. But even then, he has a great respect for Judaism and obviously particular Spinoza. For 1799, I thought that was a very impressive move to make. He's trying to take a great step back from defending Christianity and really getting into the idea of defending religion as a concept, any religion. Let me try to see if I can uh, break down what I think are the two oppositions that are presented within the two speeches we're going to discuss today. One is in the first speech, he's talking about how do we reconcile the opposing aspects of human existence? Different types of religion and even atheism, he felt, spoke to two different human needs. One is the need for particularity, 
And one is the need for universality. Particularity tends to be represented in what you can get from religion or beliefs that you hold. It tends to be representative by positive religions, such as traditional church dogmatics. It's represented by affirmative belief and positive belief. And even, he said, to the cultural despisers of religion, even atheism, because ultimately atheism is itself a form of positive belief, according to him, which is something similar to a critique you might hear nowadays leveled against some of the new atheists, that they're really taking atheism to something beyond uncertainty and into more of its own dogmatism. So he says that's one problem that people are having and that people need to reconcile. The other one is universality. And this is represented by the deism that was popular in the day, the Kantianism, who'd had an, an enormous impact on religious belief amongst the educated classes at the time, natural religion, and just critical reflection, the emerging growth of the sciences. This is a period of time in Europe in which theology was really becoming supplanted by natural science and philosophy. And I think we take all of that for granted today because religion has ultimately become marginalized. But at the time, it was still very much a live issue. And Schleiermacher, in the first speech is really trying to figure out how is it that we can mediate between those two human needs, those two ontological forces that are bearing down on people. Well, I, I like that you're putting it as ontological forces, because that was something that stood out here, and it sounded very much like what we were just reading in Hegel. Yes. That uh, he describes nature as a never-ending play of opposing forces. This is near the beginning of the right. speech. Everything has its determinate existence by uniting and holding fast in a special way the opposing forces of nature. Wherefore, the spirit also, insofar as it manifests itself in a finite life, must be subject to the same law. The human soul, as shown by its passing actions and its inward characteristics, has its existence chiefly in two opposing impulses. One strives to establish itself as an individual. Uh, the other, again, is the dread fear to stand alone over against the whole, the longing to surrender oneself and be absorbed in greater, to be taken hold of and determined. So it's not even just a matter of human psychology. That's just how ontology works. And... I think he does have some positive things to say about the nature of God that's just sort of given by piety in the same way. I don't know. I don't want to draw too close a connection, but remember Spinoza's argument for the existence of God, if you go back to our podcast episode on that, was really pretty obvious. I mean, he gave it a couple different formulations, but one of them was essentially just, hey, look at this, any finite thing. It implies sort of as its opposite, the rest of existence. Right. So there is an infinite. The world is this infinite and it is implied by every single individuation of any thing. So it's sort of the world is given phenomenologically as the infinite. And that's almost all you need for piety and for a notion of, obviously, that's not enough for a god as a personality. Well, that's what you have to throw away, right? That, well, that's what you lose if you go he, down that he road. He thinks it's dangerous. Right. That's, there's useful parts to thinking of it that way to sort of get people in the spirit and understand meaning and get some of what you're supposed to get out of religion. But it's ultimately not. Right? He, he talks about the piety that this whole thing is based on as a taste for the infinite. That's right. We should say more what piety is, right? That the sort of um, awareness of one's own complete dependence on God. I think that's the fundamental definition he gives, right? That's the one that he gives, right. It's in his later systematic theology that he actually uses that kind of phrasing, that ultimate Yeah, I know. I'm taking God. this from uh, secondary. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's okay. Believe me, that's yeah. what informs most of me on this. But in on religion, which is, again, sort of a young person's work, and I think it has a lot of table pounding in it, which I quite take to. It's very much of the romantic moment, I think. And I think that the romantic literary style really permeates this, which I was curious if you guys found that frustrating, because there's really no rigor or methodology in this argument. But there's a lot of good emotional uh, turns of phrase in some of this. I found myself highlighting quite a lot of individual sentences, especially in the first speech here. It was using very poetic language, but it does just kind of go on and on and on like this discussion <laughs> in a, in a semi-organized <laughs> way. Right. I found it very difficult to get through. 
I definitely think so too. However, I kind of kept going and I slogged my way through some of the third speech and the fourth speech, not the notes on it, but just the speeches themselves. By the end of it, I felt like, okay, I understand where he's coming from. He just nips around and touches at it. And then when I looked back at the beginning parts and I'm like, oh, all right, well, he's so it's almost exemplifying his own theory that he has this inspiration for this idea, the stance he's arguing from, and he doesn't know quite how to express it. And so he expresses it in several different ways. And it's, yeah, it's not a cogent, logical argument. Didn't he also make a specific reference to that in the second speech of saying, look, in order to describe it, you're going to lose it. The whole purpose of the second speech is then he's getting away from, okay, what is this human ontological need? What is religion, right? How does one approach that concept? And he goes on to say that a lot of people think of religion as either something that you think about or it's something that you do, right? It's either a conceptual logic about the universe and about God, or it's a way of acting such as Kant would have you do. It's a moral action. Whereas he's saying, no, there's this third realm. You don't mediate those two problems by finding a compromise in the middle. There's this third realm that you access of religious experience, which is this kind of feeling of emotion, this intuitive sense. But because it's intuitive and because it's emotional and because he's tried to describe it as this preconceptual phenomenological merger with the infinite, you can't properly describe it. Mark, in particular, you had some critique about that, which I think we probably ought to get into. I saw a lot of parallels between this and our Taoism discussion right. long ago. Thank God you said that, because I wanted to get into that. Yeah. Yeah, where what is most important can't be expressed. Right. But at the same time, as for Taoism, I'm just thinking back, there's a lot of description of people who are very spiritual and how they act. Yes. And they're very at one with themselves. They're very relaxed. They can do amazing feats of physical prowess because they're so focused on what they're doing and in the moment. I think uh, Schleiermacher is going to agree with quite a lot of that description. Even though piety is just an emotion. It doesn't tell you any facts. It doesn't tell you there is a God and he loves me or something like that if you interpret it literally. Like there is a creature out there who has something that I understand to be this emotion. It's not something that literal. And it's also not telling me directly, don't kill because that's wrong. If you're going to know that kind of knowledge, you have to get it from elsewhere. Well, and the important and thing there is that ethics doesn't come from religion. Ethics stands on its exactly, own. Ethics, exactly. In, in fact, he says religion is demeaned by trying to use it as just a useful way to get ethics. He says it's not only unnecessary for ethics, but it really cheapens religion to feel like you need it to support ethics. Ethics stands on its own. And I think as we've seen before, Kant was so instrumental and so influential at the time, I think he really felt that almost all major ways to get through ethics could be gotten through Kantian analysis. Right. In other words, reason itself tells you, right. if you're doing a Kantian analysis of reason, what you're supposed to believe ethically. A practical reason, right, yeah. Yes, practical reason. And that's enough. And the difference, just to follow this through and give the very short version of the Kant, and I don't know if I got a whole lot more out of reading the preface to the religion within the bounds of bare reason than I had already understood from the critique of pure reason before, right, from his epistemological works. I did skim the work itself, the first couple sections of that, and found it to be pretty interesting if you want to know more about Kant's ethics. Like, there's all these questions when we were doing the ethics. Kant seems to tell you, here's what you do. Here's the maxim that makes an action right. And there's criticisms that, well, it doesn't sound like he's much of a virtue ethicist, right? It's all just a matter of analyzing the action and your motive for doing the action. But in this work, Religion Within the Bounds of Bare Reason, he does seem to focus a lot on being a good person overall or being an evil person overall. That's what he's considering in here. The titles of the books in here concerning the indwelling of the evil principle with the good, 
or on the radical evil in human nature, and then concerning the conflict of the good with the evil principle for sovereignty over man. So he's letting himself use the language of virtue ethics while still really completely keeping to his own theory. And then the other foray is, of course, adding the God language to this. And in some ways, it's kind of metaphorical. And so again, I'm, I'm not feeling like I got a lot more additional information out of looking at this, but I did get some examples of the way Kant thinks you can use religious speech. So pretty much his argument for, it's an indirect argument, right? You can't have a direct argument for the existence of God because by definition, that's beyond the bounds of human understanding, right? Human understanding only judges things that are in perception or truths of logic, things like that, right? Yes. So if you're doing old-style metaphysics and trying to prove things about God, you're violating that. And the same thing if you try to use old-style metaphysics and say, yeah, God came up with these laws of things we're supposed to do. There's no justification for doing that on Kantian grounds. There's no way you could know that. Or he talks specifically in this book about grace. You could have this experience that Schleiermacher is describing of what feels like a divine effect on you, but you can't actually know that God is causing that. That's outside of the sphere of perception. I quickly put down, I'll confess, religion within the boundaries of bare reason because I just didn't find it was really speaking to the God issue very well. It seemed to be speaking more to the church and to morality. The critique of practical reason had some really interesting comments and I, I think perhaps shows an interesting way in which Kant tries to get to religion in a way that very sharply distinguishes itself from Schleiermacher. As you said, Mark, you can't get to God through any sense of reason. But according to his postulates, if there is a highest good to be attained, what he called the summum bonum, and because you know you can never actually attain the highest ethical good while you're still alive, because it's in the nature of people, perhaps this blends in well with religion within the boundaries of bare reason, but because it's within the nature of people to always want to do the right thing for what they can get out of it, and it's never for itself. And if we're going to postulate that the highest good must be possible, because you can't posit an ethical rule that can't be attained, then Kant seems to make this, what I thought, innovative, although I think it's a move that fails, but it's a really innovative move to say there must be a God and there must be an immortality because how on earth could you possibly get to the highest good on this life? You can't, you can't live long enough to get to the highest good. It's something that you can only approach asymptotically, and therefore immortality must exist says Kant in the middle of Critique of Practical Reason, because otherwise there is no way to approach the highest good. Well, we do know that from his epistemology, what the function of the faculty of reason is, right? Which is reason is something that tries to extend every concept to its limit, right? So not only is causality apply to things in the world that I can experience, it must apply to everything. It tries to reach out. And so it gives us some concepts, and one of these is the concept of the infinite at all. Right. It's exactly something we get. I was going to tie this into our mathematics discussion of last time. The idea that, so we set up this practice of counting things, say, right. one, two, three, then immediately reason jumps up and posits the infinite. And there's really nothing in our experience that can assure us that there are an infinite number of things to be counted. And yet we feel it, don't we? We get that concept in any case. Right. So that's where reason comes in. On the other hand, since reason is clearly going beyond its proper bounds, which is what reason always does, sure. then uh, the critique of pure reason is meant to say, okay, that doesn't give us positive knowledge. But as a practical matter, if you imagine doing the right thing or what's the maxim that's going to always drive the right actions, then it's very natural to sort of imagine being perfectly ethical and Reason itself, in the same way that, you know, it jumps from one, two, three to a infinite, jumps from these applicable ethical maxims to 
some model of perfection and to a lawgiver who sets this law. That's right. And to this, we even talked about in the ethics episode, the kingdom of ends, mm -hmm. this uh, utopian sort of, if everybody were to obey the categorical imperative and act ethically all the time, then we would end up with this perfect harmony. And so that's like you're saying, what we're asymptotically stretching toward. So these things are just, as a practical matter, we posit the perfect saint and the perfect law and the perfect world as things that we move toward. Right. And so we can't say for sure that they're there, but since as a practical matter, I mean, we can't say for sure that the ethical law is there in some sense. We don't experience it. Did Kant posit the highest good as an axiom? Is it something – because I got the sense from the argument that, look, we have to accept that there is such a thing as a highest good. And it's a necessary corollary of the highest good that you must be able to attain it. And then from there, he kind of goes on to these subsequent corollaries to say that you can't know this in the way that you can conceptualize say, synthetic or analytic concepts, but you can infer from the initial summum bonum, from the initial highest good, that you have to be able to attain it. And the only way that would be possible is to gain immortality and to live in this kind of higher plane. I just thought that was interesting because Schleiermacher doesn't have any use for that. This is the cash payout of the different approaches, that in some ways Kant gives you immortality in a god, which you tend to ascribe more toward a positive doctrinal religion. Schleiermacher takes this phenomenological approach, and how does he end the second speech? Spoiler alert. There is no personal God and there is no immortality. Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps.